from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at the Marriott Oakland City Center, site of the Verge 18 Conference and Expo in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the sights and sounds of Verge, a ballad to our host city, lessons from Walmart and UPS on electrifying fleets, and can carbon removal become a business opportunity? We are clearing the air this week on 350. It's October 19th, 2018. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me here at the audio booth at the Oakland Marriott is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather, happy Verge Week. Hey, we're all being fancy schmancy here at the audio booth. <laughs> yeah, well, I just thought I'd say audio booth because it's we never get one. No, we never get one. We need one. We need an audio booth. <laughs> so, uh, well, you know, we're, we're, as usual, recording this uh, about that will play after the event is over, but the event isn't over right now, so we're, we're still in the thick of it. But it's been uh, a really interesting week, <laughs> to say the least. Absolutely. Um, I feel uh, welcome here in the host city. <laughs> Actually, um, it, is, it is an interesting week. What I love about this event, um, and always, wherever it is, is the community that comes together. And this, this time has been a challenge for, for reasons that we'll go into in a moment, but also... Um, that seems to have brought people even more tightly together. I, I'm quite, quite um, astonished and, and humbled by that. The challenge Heather's referring to is a strike, a labor strike uh, taking place uh, with the uh, Unite here at Local 2850, uh, part of a larger series of strikes against the Marriott Hotel chain taking place around the United States in about seven cities. And um, yeah, it's, it was it was a, a problem for lots of reasons. One, you know, we had a union that was uh, that was basically you know challenging us to not have this event, and um, hotel that was not seeming to want to work as closely with the union as possible, and us in the middle, um, and uh, you know, trying to figure out do we stay or do we go, and or do we cancel, and and canceling and moving weren't options. It turns out, Heather, that finding a venue that can handle a thousand plus person ballroom plus a a large uh, expo space plus 10,000 square foot microgrid where people have meals and receptions and as many as 14 concurrent breakout rooms within a week's time is not so easy. And we looked at about 20 different venues, including the USS Hornet uh, on Alameda mm -hmm. Harbor, not too far from here, no public transportation to get there, but uh, I don't know, I, I didn't see it, but it could have been a cool venue, sort of maybe appropriate, you know, battleship. So we ended up staying here and having to work with uh, Unite here, the union, and and trying to you know basically play ball and to the extent that we can, and it's worked out good enough. I think every feels like everyone's playing their role. They're playing their role. We're playing our role. Our audience is very understanding, and only uh, very few people, mostly elected officials, who were planning to be here had to cancel, and it's a tough situation. You know, and part of it was like. I was thinking about our team, our, particularly we have this team of a bunch of uh, millennials, 20-somethings, um, and this is the first time a lot of them have had to cross a picket line. And, and it, it may be true for others, too, 
and and you, yeah, including you, Heather. Um, there's been a certain amount of personal anguish over this, uh, aside from having to subject, you know, our Verge community, two thousand plus people, to the you know the beating drums and pots and pans and bullhorns that that are taking place on the street. Anyway. The conference has gone really, really well considering. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it is a beautiful city. I, I walk around and I, I love this place. I feel like I'm becoming much more acquainted with it. And the, 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 the theme of this conference is about place, right? One of the themes is how, how, do you, how do you regenerate your place? How do you take your local place and make it better and how do you become better stewards of 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 your place because every one of us has a place um and and addressing things on a very local level is so important and one of my favorite um uh presentations was the one that uh that dawn dawn danby did for uh the, the welcome actually one of the welcomes after pete after our co-founder pete may um talked about uh, why we were here and so forth and i I really didn't have um, the sort of appreciation for this city that I now, after this week, really have. Well, I love to hear that as a, as a native Oaklander. And Pete and I, uh, when we co-founded this company back in uh, 12 years ago or so, the question was always where, not where do we set up shop, but where in Oakland. And, and so we're both proud native Oaklanders and, and, and just excited about the dynamic going on in this city. And part of that is what we really tried to do here this week. Uh, in, uh, and it was a very uh, strategic decision to bring Verge to Oakland after being down in the heart of Silicon Valley for a number of years in terms of, of exposing the Oakland community, uh, community groups, school groups, uh, professional groups, the academic community, um, lots of others, of course, the corporate crowd, to Verge and all these technologies, um, but also, also introducing and the Verge community to Oakland mm-hmm. and getting them to see this um, diverse, exciting, dynamic, complex, problematic city that um, uh, in which I, I live and work and play. And, uh, you know, we, we've, I think it's been a mission accomplished. We've had uh, events all around, uh, at least downtown, and um, taking advantage of closing off streets to house our microgrids with our receptions. And and it's been really satisfying to do that, uh, and I and hearing people like you, you know, uh, died in the wool East Coasters, and, and 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 several others I've talked to who said, you know, I could totally make this my home. I get it now, and so we really appreciate that. And yes, Don Danby, a longtime friend of ours, she is a designer, design thinker. Uh, spent many years at Autodesk, um, and now, uh, along with uh, David McConville, uh, runs a, a think tank organization called Spherical. Uh, opened the show on Tuesday with this really lovely ode to uh, Oakland and place in general. And here's what that sounded like. So not long ago, I had an, an epiphany. Um, It came after almost 20 years of working in sustainability and design, and I was trying to balance the health of ecosystems and the growth of industry, right? And I felt like I'd been accumulating sustainability merit badges, you know, like I'd I'd been learning the finer points of advanced green building analysis and um, toxicity and green chemistry, and everything I'd worked on had been about reducing harm. So reducing harm within industrial life cycles, right? And that had been my work. But these days, though, I am holding a different question. So let me tell you a story. 
If you'd arrived here just a little bit earlier, like maybe a century or two, you might have seen the salt marsh in the estuary. It's, it's now a lake, it's just down the street here. And once shifting with the tides, it's now ringed by miles of street lights. And it became the United States' first protected wildlife refuge, in fact. Some of its residents had been here for millennia. Birds stop on their way up and down the coast. But there are also some recent arrivals who really, they go around, they circle the lake, they've got their pet dogs, and they lean back against the cut grass, and they watch the local star as it hoops overhead. And they watch a skyline that changes every day. Oakland, California is a new enough idea, geologically speaking, but for its people, it is mythic. This place is full of paradoxical beauty. It's been carefully crafted and frequently disrupted, a product of intentionality, mistakes, chance encounters. It's full of complexity. It's a place that's been shaped by both epic dreams and brutal displacements. Before there was Oakland, there were the missions, and before the missions, there were people living all up and down the coast. They were here for a long time. They're still here. And even before the people arrived, there were big animals who, whose movements and habits co-evolved together with the land. And the land produced year-round. The first people took over the role of the apex predators. They became tenders of the wild through gathering and hunting. So burning the ground for new growth, they balanced the meadows and the forests. They left tall mounds of shells for their ancestors. They were gardeners. As such, they invited in the trees, who invited in the rains, who invited in the trees. This is not at all what the colonial people saw when they arrived. The newer people were disruptive, and they imagined that all humans were always disruptive. They failed to understand that there was a sacred reciprocity at work between the native peoples and their non-human relations. It's said that the diversity and health of the landscapes plummeted when the tenders were massacred. Their gardens were, in fact, gardened. And yet this is rarely the story we tell ourselves. In ecosystems, there are species upon which the whole community depends. We call them keystone species. Is it even possible to see ourselves that way? After all, we've been watching the West evaporating into fire. We all know it's hotter out. And yet there's a deeper truth, too, that much of the land is no longer properly tended. The rains have not been invited to linger in the ground. Unimaginable fires will return until we can imagine a new way to dance with them. Here in Oakland, as with everywhere now, the extremes are on bright display. In this time of change, we find ourselves saying goodbye to familiar things, comforts, cultures, ecologies. These changes, because they're hard, make it hard to see the counterforces. They can make it hard to imagine other futures. And yet, who are the custodians, the tenders of those futures? What are we encoding into the future with our present designs? Who are the gardeners who plant and water those futures? When you walk out of here, onto the streets of downtown Oakland, you'll see a build-out of new skyline. There are new patterns emerging as the wealth and the poverty stretch ever farther apart. 
the solar Victorians overlook the encampments. Down on the ground, you can hear gunshots and fireworks, crows and helicopters, woodpeckers and trains. The trees on the ridge drink the fog. There is joy and there is struggle. And on those days, you can actually smell the ocean here. Because after all, Oakland, like all cities, is a hybrid ecosystem. It concentrates intention and energy, bringing us together in new ways, holding us. But it's up to us how we tend them. Do we pave or do we plant? You know it's hotter on the blacktop than it is under the shade of the trees, because climates are local too. The climate creates ecosystems, but ecosystems also create the climate. And all of our local climates are connected. If you head west to the port of Oakland, you pass through zones of concrete cement on every surface, and through that, a thoroughly new landscape, a post-war logistics, an exchange, where the material flows from across the Pacific make landfall. The Port of Oakland is an artery linking flows from across the earth. Its veins are uniquely human, like the metabolism of your body, like the cycles through this city. But as capital flows, as do we, as do our intentions. And so every object we use, every space we inhabit, is a temporary arrangement of atoms. If you ever thought for a moment that you make products, not processes. If you ever question whether anything is static, this place, like every place, will clarify things for you. And it's becoming painfully clear we can no longer take extraction for granted. So sometimes it helps to be reminded, what do the breaths, the tides, the soil under our feet tell us? Isn't it that life is reciprocal? in ways that we may never fully know. Our habits and perspectives can make healing an unthinkable thought. And yet, this planet is alive. We are aspects of it. We are aspects of the whole. Our bodies are drawn from this soil. We're mostly water, aqueous beings on planet ocean. Each of us is a community of beings with a pattern all our own. What are humans for? What are we doing as we're humaning? We've become a planetary species, adapted to every place on Earth, transforming Earth itself. So isn't it time to evolve the questions that we're asking ourselves? Can we do better than reducing harm? How might we, together, become healers to support and regenerate the cycles of life? So that was Don Danby from Spherical talking about Oakland and place. And one other part before we move on to the Week in Review is just to uh, talk a little bit about these emerging leaders and uh, impact fellows that we've had at Verge this year. And one of them is a uh, new issue. The other was brand new. Uh, we've had emerging leaders. Uh, we have scholarships in this year thanks to United Airlines uh, sponsoring uh, uh, nine, in this case, uh, young people of color primarily to fly in and be put up at the hotel, get a scholarship uh, to attend Verge and just become part of this. Um, and then the other is a 
new and special to Oakland, an organization called United Roots, with which I've had a, uh, a long-time relationship with as a board member, works with uh, youth, uh, 16 to 24-year-olds uh, in East and West Oakland, uh, bringing in uh, some of them, uh, giving them scholarships, thanks to PG&E and Wells Fargo, to attend the group. But it's not just giving them a ticket and saying, go enjoy. We've We've uh, created a lounge for them to meet one another and also hang out with uh, 30 under 30s that we have here. We had some events where as um, a breakfast uh, Wednesday morning uh, where they got to meet with some corporates and, and we had you know someone from Facebook and someone from Apple and some others coming and meeting with them and learning about them and getting and, and asking about them because it's not just you know el- us elders you know uh, imparting our wisdom on, on these young people they've got things to tell us and it's really they're really Really, their perspectives are really, really interesting. So, shout out to um, to our sponsors on that, and to United Roots, and everyone, and, and Liza, and, and Manasi, and and others on our team who really helped pull that together. So that's a little bit about what's been happening here. But let's get into some of the stories we covered in the week in review. So one of the guests here we've had this week is Lyle Jack, uh, chairman of the Oglala Sioux Tribe and a staunch advocate for uh, renewable energy. And Heather, you spent some time with him and wrote a story about him this week. Yeah, so this is a really lovely, I'll say lovely because it's it's one of those things that's great business, a great business um, idea, but also a great idea culturally. And Lyle Jack is part of what's called the Oshedi Shakawi Power Authority. And this... uh, Authority is built of six Sioux tribes in Dakota, South Dakota. And what they've done is um, decided rather than trying on their own to figure out ways of, of opening up their land for wind projects, they got together to figure out um, how to collaborate on, on making bigger impact. What they, had, what they had found when they went to some of the developers, you know, on their own was hey, interesting, but not big enough, you know, not a big enough opportunity. So now this, this power authority, I'll call it the OSPA, is trying to uh, develop up to one gigawatt for start uh, of, of uh, wind power on their lands, on, on their, their reservations in the South Dakota area. And they already have a, a great partner in Apex. Uh, they've got a joint venture. which was highly unusual for a developer to do a joint venture. Um, and, and the OSPA is actually the majority owner. So 51%, they have the final say on decisions. Again, not something you'd usually find um, in a relationship like that. But the bottom line is um, these tribes are looking at power, wind power, as a way of ra- raising up their communities, of providing not just jobs in the wind industry itself, but providing the electricity, right, for other businesses. So as you build this access to power on the reservations, all sorts of other businesses can crop up around it. Um, so quite a, an amazing uh, collaboration between OSPA and Apex. So there's a steady revenue stream, there's uh, access to, to power, there's jobs, there's obviously the environmental be- benefits. It's really the triple bottom line. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, t- typically, and what these tribes had found when they, again, went out to sort of explore the opportunities was that the developers wanted them to, okay, yeah, lease us the land, you know, we'll give you a little lease payment. Uh-uh. This makes these folks, um, they get the revenue, the long-term revenue tax-wise. They get um, also special consideration because they are on Indian land. 
the business model just works for them and it's different. It's, it's very different. And they will admit um, that they have a lot to learn, right? And Apex is, is being instrumental in, in helping them learn that. I mean, there's going to be a certain amount of knowledge transfer. And, you know, I think that Apex will work with them on future projects, but they're also not expecting to have to work with them. They just feel like it's a great um, opportunity for them to learn the cultural considerations um, uh, and, and, they, and Apex actually sees other opportunities in the United States for, for different projects. And they see this as a way of understanding what they need to think about in different ways and so forth. Well, it's always good when you can create a project like this and not have it a one-off, but actually build a model from that or pr prototype mm -hmm. something that's scalable. And meanwhile, in your prolific writing about energy and renewables and all of this, uh, um, there's another piece that you wrote, and it's it's based in, in, in large part on a meeting that happened at the beginning of Verge, pre-Verge, on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday of the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance. This uh, organization spun out of uh, BSR and Rocky Mountain Institute and WRI and WWF and um, just uh, did announce a new executive director, uh, Miranda Ballantyne, who was one of the founders of it. And um, it just came back, former Assistant Secretary of, of Defense for the Air Force, headed up renewables and energy. Just uh, a woman who's been, and before that with Walmart, someone who's been at on both sides of this, on all sides of the energy, government, uh, corporate piece of renewables. It's really interesting stuff. And meanwhile, along all this, Microsoft, uh, you write, has figured out a way to reduce risks associated with power purchase agreements. What's going on there? <laughs> okay, so power purchase agreements um, are sort of an un unnatural act for many companies. Um, it's it's just not a, a core expertise for for large companies. I mean, it's just something that energy traders deal with and, and all the people on that side. When you sign a power purchase agreement for a wind or solar project, you have to assume all sorts of risks, at least traditionally speaking. So when the wind doesn't blow, when the sun isn't shining, all the variables that, that you know, we talk about that, that make these projects intermittent and challenging, those are risks. When those things happen, when there isn't enough power, um, the company has to go out and find a different source and, and somehow match all of these things up. So there's a lot of unnatural accounting that they're doing. And you want to ask me a question? Well, I just wanted to point out that for people who don't know what a power purchase agreement is, it's a long-term commitment, usually 15, 20 years, mm -hmm. uh, that a company is going to buy X amount of kilowatt hours uh, over at, at a certain price for a long period of time. So they're, they're locking in their price. And there may be an inflation adjustment built into that, but they can, they know what their energy price is going to be. And then, and of course, the, the risk on the other side is that the company has to provide to whoever that contractor is. And I think that's where you're talking about the risk taking place. Well, so it, 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 and it's a little bit of a commodity, right? So sometimes the wind blows a lot and there's excess power and you actually are producing more power at these wind farms than you actually need as a company to say that I am renewably uh, powered. So when that happens, you need to sell that excess power and you, and you need to sort of reconcile, right? And so they call it settling, settling out the, the, the excess. On the flip side, again, when you're not producing enough, you have to kind of go out and find other sources. So it's, it's, it, it is, in essence, a, a commodity. It's a trading thing. And I mean, I'm simple, oversimplifying things. But it's also very risky. Um, you're assuming risks with these farms. And so what Microsoft has done is they've worked with some, um, some insurance companies, right? Alliance is, is one of the major um, organizations that's involved here. Um, and they're, 
they figured out a way to sort of unbundle that risk and and help others that love risk, like insurance companies, actually participate in the contract. So it's this is kind of a contract on the contract. It's it's just a slightly different twist on how they get negotiated. It takes some of the risks out and gives them to a different party. A third party can assume them on the company's behalf. So that's really what they've done here. So you get the sense that this is a, the first of what could be a lot of these, that this is a the new uh, model that will just get rolled out, or is this still an experiment? Well, so Microsoft is going to do this with their with all of their power purchase agreements moving forward. They're going to find a way to do this because they don't want that risk. They are also sharing this this model with others. They they hope that other companies will will want to do it. And they feel that it's it it will be one way for others uh, other organizations to participate. I mean, it's because one of the reasons that. Um, small and mid-size and, and even larger companies don't sign these power purchase agreements is because they're so risky. You know, they, uh, a lot of organizations don't have this energy skill. They don't have this, this expertise within their organizations. And they're like, oh, I don't know if I want to sign this. And, and you know, from a, from a sort of strategic perspective, there's other, the risk folks in, in a company might not want to sign because of this. This might help um, open the doors to more companies. If they feel like, hey, I can just this insurance company is going to come in and help me share that or, or assume that risk, then it becomes a, a different conversation um, and less, less people to convince. So let's turn now to the topic of fleets, uh, electrifying fleets in particular. And I have to say this is part of the uh, Verge uh, Transport Conference that's taking place this week alongside the Verge Energy and Verge Circular Conferences, the three-in-one conference uh, format that we have uh, turned to this year. And there's been a, a great deal of conversation about uh, what can you electrify? How much can you electrify big heavy trucks uh, or trains or planes, uh, along with, of course, uh, passenger automobiles. Yusilia Wong, who's our senior contributor here this week, helping us cover this event uh, from the East Coast, uh, wrote a piece about uh, lessons from Walmart and UPS on electrifying their fleets. And this is based uh, in large part on a main uh, stage session that was headed by uh, Matt Peterson, the um, former chief sustainability officer for the city of Los Angeles and now the CEO of the LA Cleantech Incubator. So this is a great, this um, the session, the plenary that you just mentioned was pretty enlightening because, uh, and I'm, I'm like one of those optimists, those innovation optimists you wrote about earlier this week. I get excited about new technologies and I am excited about the opportunity to electrify fleets, um, as are many people. We even have um, one of the biggest fleet management companies in the world, Land Plan, with 1.8 million vehicles in 32 countries. They think that they can um, use zero emissions fleets to, um, to reach a, a goal there by 2030. So they think they can use electric vehicles to get to that goal by 2030. But the two companies in question, um, really, they, they, put, they put sort of the reality check on it, right? So there's, there, there are two different things talked about during the session that I took away. Number one, um, UPS, uh, you know, we talk about maintenance as, as being one of the big benefits of switching to an electric fleet. But uh, Scott Filippi, the senior director of maintenance and engineering at UPS said, not so fast. Um, there, there, there's definitely a promise there, but because there's so few different models right now, it's, it's, 
not, we haven't hit critical mass yet. So it's, it's actually not really, they're not really seeing the, the maintenance benefits. So that was one thing. Um, and they have a, definitely a big fleet program in uh, central London, about 170 vehicles. Anyway, so they're, they're, they, they sort of put that reality check on, um, on it. And, and then the other big fleet operator that we had um, talking about this opportunity was Walmart. Elizabeth Fredheim, um, the point she made, which was like one of those, oh, so obvious, was, okay, we want to electrify our fleets. Where do we put the charging stations? Because they don't return to the same exactly. place every night like a local UPS delivery truck might. Uh, they're, they're traveling long hauls down the interstate, and uh, you got to figure out, you know, for each route, whether it's, you know, Chicago to, to Denver or Chicago to Atlanta or, you know, St. Louis to Newark. I mean, each one of those is going to have a whole different set of, of needs for where you put the chargers. And that's, um, I mean, I imagine it's a solvable problem. I mean, uh, uh, Elon Musk and Tesla, they, they put together a charging network up and down Interstate 5 at sort of the right intervals. Uh, so you could drive from San Francisco to L.A. if you need a charge but maybe it's more complicated than that. I see there being a public-private opportunity here. So you mentioned a bunch of cities. I mean, that boom right there seems like a, hey, let's work together to, to build some infrastructure here. And it could be an opportunity, an economic opportunity um, for along those routes. But yeah, absolutely something that has to be sorted through and think, thought, thought through before um, this really can become a, a predominant uh, method of transportation. And this syncs up with a study that we did, GreenBiz, in partnership with UPS and our, our colleague John Davies and Paul Karp, showed uh, uh, from a survey of, of you all out there that um, the, the, it's the three things, uh, high-priced bioelectric vehicles, the inadequate charging network, and the lack of electric vehicle types for different types of, of vehicles um, small, medium, and large, th- those are the big obstacles that, that government and corporate fleet managers are going to have to figure out. And, and it's just really interesting to see uh, two big, big companies, UPS and Walmart, talking about what this looks like for them as they roll along. When Verge opened on Tuesday, one of the first panels was about catalyzing a new carbon economy. I had the great pleasure to bring together three really uh, interesting and uh, thinkers on that. Uh, one is Julio Friedman, who uh, most recently was with Lawrence uh, Livermore Lab as an ex-Department of Energy official looking at, uh, at carbon removal and clean coal was part of his mandate there. And Kate Gordon, who is a longtime champion of of policy sides of, from a number of different issues, uh, recently with the Paulson Institute, Hank Paulson's organization, and now with a venture fund uh, firm called Ridgelane. Um, and Charlene Russell, who is the vice president for uh, Low Carbon Economy Solutions. I think I might have gotten that slightly off, but that's the point, at Occidental Petroleum. And Oxy is just a really interesting company because they um, are committed to being emission neutral. And, you know, and I asked uh, at one point, um, I asked uh, Charlene Russell, you know, really? <laughs> and, um, uh, to, you know, how do you do that? What do you measure? What, what, what does that uh, look like for you, for you? And, you know, this is about taking uh, greenhouse gases and using it for advanced oil recovery by shoving it into the ground to get more oil out of the ground. And they can do that, they say, at sufficient quantity that the resulting 
oil or gas that comes out is low carbon, they mm -hmm. call it. And, uh, you know, I think I talked to a lot of people afterwards and there was uh, more than a little bit of skepticism, but I think a lot of genuine interest because you can't, this is not a crowd that just poo-poos things because it's an oil company trying to do something. This is a, a conference and an audience that gets the role of technologies to advance sustainability solutions. Uh, what did you think, Heather? So I was... Um intrigued by the opportunities that this this uh, panel was discussing because you know for many companies they look at this issue of carbon removal which we now know we have to do quicker as one that's a cost right they think about oh this is going to cost my company money blah 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 this panel was great at in introducing opportunities and the the oxy um, example that you just mentioned i think she said that it would take you know was like the equivalent of taking 4 million cars off the road or something like that Basically, there is an opportunity um, for, for uh, new materials. Um, a great example that Kate Gordon gave was the, the notion that you could take um, a carbon out of the air and put it into concrete. And so com countries like India and China, which are building at extraordinary rates, are now looking at how to use that material, right? So at the same time, how do you address both issues at once? And so for me, it was like one of those enlightening and illuminating moments. I'm, again, I'm, I tend to be um, more on the optimism side and, and I, you know, I do get skeptical and cynical occasionally, but um, I, I felt it was um, illuminating for, for that reason. Um, I also uh, was struck by the idea that it could help in rural areas. So if you think about the two most important ways of taking carbon out of the air, there's the, the, the technologies, absolutely, and that excites me and so forth, but there's also the natural systems. There's afforestation, there's soil sequestration, you know, capture and putting it into the soil. And um, again, the, the notion was, was raised that maybe this would be a great opportunity for rural economies, um, as well as countries that, that are looking for new economic uh, opportunities like Kenya or even Chad uh, was mentioned. Um, so that, that to me was uh, enlightening and intriguing. And as uh, somebody wrote, I can't find the, the piece right now in the uh, Financial Times the other day uh, about sort of this world of technologies and, and climate change. Uh, there's two things that humans produce in abundance. One is carbon dioxide and the other is ideas. And this panel was kind of a mashup of those two worlds of what are not just the ideas, but the technologies and then the business models. And, you know, can we create concrete at scale in a way that, that sequesters uh, captures and sequesters sufficient amounts of greenhouse gases um, you know, to make a difference. Can we take methane out to create new kinds of plastics as Nike is doing and a number of other companies are doing? You know, can we uh, change farming methods to sequester uh, carbon in the soil, which enhances the soil and make, allows it to you know, take in and, and retain water and, and makes it richer and, and all sorts of things? Um, so there's all kinds of wins here. It, the, really, it's really about the, the economics of doing all these things. It, it, they're still early stage, just like wind and solar were 10 or 20 years ago. They were great ideas. Everyone says that we should be doing this, but it just doesn't make business sense. And what we heard in this panel is that it's kind of starting to. And so I actually had, uh, pulled aside two of your panelists uh, and did separate interviews with them. So what you will hear next are my interviews with Kate Gordon and with Julio Friedman. Kate Gordon is an internationally recognized expert on the intersection of clean energy and economic development. She may best be known for her work as the founder and director of the, quote, Risky Business Project, end quote, co-chaired by Michael Bloomberg, 
Hank Paulson, and Tom Steyer. Today, she is a fellow with the Columbia Center on Global Energy Policy, a partner on the sustainability team of Ridge Lane Limited Partners, and a senior advisor at the Paulson Institute. Kate was a featured speaker this week at Verge about the new carbon economy. Kate, thanks for joining me on Green Biz 350. It's great to be here. So let's start with the elephant in the room. <laughs> the, the report released earlier this month by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which was written by 91 scientists from more than 40 countries and involving more than 6,000 peer-reviewed studies, it's pretty uh, grim. The, yeah, the takeaway yeah. is pretty clear. Um, we don't need to halt emissions. We need to reduce what's already in the atmosphere. Uh, well, we do need to, to halt emissions. We don't we just also, need to halt yeah. emissions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yep. we need to reduce what's already in the atmosphere in order to limit global temperature warming to at least 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit for those of you in America. So, <laughs> Kate, now that you've had time to uh, digest the report a little bit, what's your reaction to the findings? So I think a lot of the coverage on the report has been pretty dire, right? I mean, it, it, it does say we have essentially 12 years, you know, until 2030 to really take serious action to reduce emissions. Um, and as you said, to, to start pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. I, I am an optimistic person in general. So there's two things about it that I just want to highlight as maybe a um, something to, to hang our hats on, something to be a little more positive about. One is that this report was actually commissioned by governments. And I think that's really important. This is a, a report that governments who signed the Paris Agreement, um, who, who had agreed to try to get to two degrees, but then ideally get beyond that to 1.5, asked the scientists to do this report to see what it would really take to get to 1.5. And the fact that governments commissioned it is a good sign because it means that um, decision makers that are trying to struggle with how to make this happen in their economies are actually trying to get the best data and the best information on what's necessary. So I think that's a positive thing. Um, the other thing, and it's relevant to this conversation, is that for the first time, this report really calls out that under any scenario to get to 1.5, we need to start doing carbon removal. So we need mm -hmm. to start looking not just at slowing down or stopping emissions going into the atmosphere. We need to actually get some of the emissions that are historic legacy emissions out of the atmosphere. And uh, there's a variety of ways the report talks about uh, the report talks about doing that. But that's that's a really key finding. OK, so here here's me being skeptical for a moment. Um, yeah. Technologies for carbon capture have been slow to take hold um, for for ver for various reasons. Um, is that changing? Well, it depends on what you mean. So, for, from my perspective, carbon removal includes things that have been around for a very long time, like planting trees, right, and like growing things. So, if you think of carbon removal as a suite of things, that's everything from land-based, you know, afforestation, reforestation, low-till practices, agricultural practices, all the way through to carbon capture and sequestration, which actually has also been around for a while, for a couple decades, to the kind of newer technologies of like direct air capture, pulling carbon straight out of the air. There's some of those things have been around forever and are tried and tested. Some of those things are newer and we need to start doing the work to figure out how they're going to be able to scale up. Basically, what the report tells us is we need to start doing more land-based practices now. We need to be thinking about those engineered solutions going into the second half of the century. So those are the, the sort of the natural 
approaches, the natural addressing the natural systems that can remove carbon. Is that where they think we can make an impact most quickly? Yeah, well, that's where um, if you look at their um, if you look at their their different models, it's interesting. Even the most aggressive model on the carbon mitigation side, the one that basically says we let's say tomorrow we do everything possible to stop emitting. That model even says, and you have to do land practices to sequester carbon, right? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the, the, the lowest hanging fruit in a way on carbon removal, because mm -hmm. we know how to do it. Um, uh, then there, you look at their models that are frankly more realistic about the fact that we're not going to stop emitting tomorrow, <laughs> um, and it's going to be a little slower. And then you see that wedge getting bigger, and the, that then you see some of those more engineered solutions coming in. My feeling, my takeaway from that is this. We have, to, we have to step up and increase the things we know how to do today, which is really on the land side, but we also need to be doing the work right now to do the research and development and pilot projects on more of the kind of far, what feel like far off engineered solutions so we know how to deploy those when we're going to need them, which is frankly as soon as, you know, 10, 15 years from now. Okay, so you mentioned engineered solutions and you specifically a moment ago mentioned direct air capture, um, capture. Sort of one yep. of the newer. So are there any approaches you believe have particular promise? Yeah, I really like direct air capture in general, let me just say, because it's, um, it's very cool. You can do it anywhere. So one of the things that everyone always struggles with, with climate change, right, is that emissions have no boundaries. Um, the, the concentration in the atmosphere is sort of you know, it's across the atmosphere. One of the cool things about direct air capture technology is that it theoretically or actually technically can be done in any place. Um, and that's pretty interesting because it means you don't have, you're not kind of subject to the wind speed or the solar resource or, you know, um, or population density or a bunch of the other things that are, are issues when you're doing other solutions. Um, I particularly like um, solutions where there's direct air capture that then takes the captured carbon and turns it into something valuable, mm -hmm. what some people call carbon to value solutions. Mm -hmm. Basically, I think people are going to do this stuff if there's a value to them. We already know that, right? I mean, the land-based solutions that are happening today are happening because people are either getting incentives to do them or they're selling uh, those carbon credits as offsets or there's some other value to the landowner. Um, we're going to see, I think, that more and more on the, on the engineered side where Let's say I'm taking carbon out of the air and then I'm turning it into, and there's a couple pilot companies doing this, I'm turning it into a substitute for aggregate in concrete that actually makes the concrete cure faster, which has a value to the building industry, right? Or I'm turning it into um, an input for greenhouses um, that is much more sustainable than like a fertilizer. So there's a bunch of interesting strategies out there that basically say, look, we need to do this, but we also need to recognize that people take on these solutions and scale them when there's a value in doing that. And you're, you're already alluding to sort of my final question. Um, and, and that's <laughs> that the fact that uh, many companies still look at removing carbon as a cost. Like they think about, oh, I, this is going to cost my yep. business this much. I got to put this technology. So, and you just mentioned some potential value, some solutions that could actually add business value. So you know, we know the possibilities there. How can we change the conversation? How do we change the conversation to get more organizations realizing that there could be real value in, in addressing you know, it, carbon? It, 
Yeah, it's a great question. It's not to me. It's sort of similar about that to what we did to change the conversation about things like renewable energy. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, our conversations about solar and wind were also arguing about sort of why the additional cost was worth it. Enough projects went in the ground. Enough we got to enough scale. Um, and frankly, policy drove a lot of this and, and needs to in carbon removal too, but policy drove the cost down. Now we're not having that argument anymore because it's just true in many places that solar and wind is cheaper than a lot of, than a lot of alternatives. So I think we need to do something similar here. What we're, what we're looking at is first, there's a need to do this and the IPCC report underscores the need. And I think that's really important. Second, we need to provide, use policy to provide incentives for um, for kind of giving that kicker where there's not already enough value, I'd frankly like to see more value given to um, land-based solutions. I'd like to see, you know, more expanded kind of negative carbon options available in some of the carbon pricing policies that exist around the world. I'd like to, I like the fact that Oregon, um, which is debating sort of a, a carbon cap and invest policy is including directly including land-based carbon removal as part of the value like you could actually trade that on the market and i think that's that's big so some of it's policy driven um we're going to need to do what we did again with renewables which is put a lot of r d money into these solutions to get them you know make sure they're safe make sure they're prudent make sure they can get to scale i'd like to see doe really step up on that um, and I'd like to see extension of some of the types of things we're already seeing, like uh, in the tax bill, the 45Q tax credit does provide value to carbon removal. It gives specific in tax incentives to people doing uh, carbon capture and sequestration and direct air capture. So does the um, so do the new guidelines for the low carbon fuel standard in California. So we're going to need that kind of a combination of policy incentives and just proving this out and seeing it on the ground and getting people more familiar with it. Well, thanks for your insights and thanks a million for uh, joining us this week at Verge. Sure, it's a pleasure. Julio Friedman is an internationally recognized expert on carbon management. Lots of titles to his name. I'm currently the senior scholar at the Center for Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Previously, the principal deputy assistant secretary with Office of Fossil Energy at the Department of Energy, and also the CEO of Carbon Wrangler. Julio, thanks for joining us here at Verge. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. So you um, are speaking on several times, or have spoken several times, on carbon removal, carbon management, and so forth. I think for, for starters, the elephant in the room here this week is the IPCC report, um, telling us that, that global warming is, is happening faster than, than we as a society anticipated or expected. Um, so what's your general reaction to that report? So this is not actually news. Uh, we've known the carbon uh, situation for a very long time. The climate math is what got me into this business back in 2003. And even in 2009, it was obvious that carbon removal was going to be part of the mix. While it's not good news, I'm pleased to see that the IPCC said overtly all paths to a 1.5 degree world involve carbon dioxide removal. That's just now another component of the work to be done. So people and businesses tend to think of carbon removal as a cost, as something that costs us money. How can we look at this more as an opportunity? I think it's helpful to start thinking of the air and start thinking of smokestacks as 
loads to be mined. These are resources to be harvested and converted into other products. Uh, it's nice when you can take a waste and use it to make a valuable product. And there's many companies out there, many represented here at Verge, that are doing exactly that. And there's, there's two very clear paths to removing carbon. There's the technology path, but there's also the natural systems path. So let's take each of them. First of all, carbon capture technologies. People tend to be kind of pessimistic about it. Oh, it's not working, it's too expensive, et cetera. So what, do you, what for you is the current state of that market and where do we need to go? Those technologies are basically where uh, things like solar panels and LEDs and batteries were 10 to 20 years ago. The difference is that at the large scale, carbon capture actually works just fine and has been working just fine. What it's lacked is policy support. That came this year. Now it's possible for businesses to go out there and capture and store CO2 for profit. And in fact, there's a number of businesses, some again represented here at Virgin, that are doing exactly that. But for pulling CO2 out of the air, the companies that have been working on that have been betting on the come, knowing that this is a necessary component of a climate solution. And with the 1.5 report, they're vindicated. And now more and more companies are looking at that feedstock of carbon dioxide and thinking, what can we do that makes sense? People talk about direct air capture. I've also been reading about seawater capture. What, what are the most um, viable paths in your mind right now for that? So there's three companies that'll sell you a direct air capture unit today. They all come in about the same price point today. And all three of them are on the glide path to about $200 a ton for capture at about 2025. So not that far from now. Part of that is their technology's gotten better. Part of that is the cost of clean energy's come down. And when you put all this stuff together, it means that they can actually enter the local markets competitively today for food and beverage and other stuff, and increasingly are gonna be competitive as a feedstock for CO2 for things like CO2 to concrete, or CO2 to carbon fiber, or even CO2 to fuels. Okay, that's the technology approach, the natural systems approach, uh, reforestation, um, soil, soil capture and so forth. What, where do you see those um, approaches going? Is that the more, um, I don't know, short-term path or is it, is it something that, that we can address more quickly? What's your view on that? It's clearly something we want to do and it's clearly something we got to do. Uh, one of the open questions about the natural pathways is at what point do you saturate? Another one is how much can you do? Like for real, like how much land and water and energy do you have to put into that stuff to really make it work? In the near term, we know that there's stuff that we can do that's cheap and straightforward and will help preserve biodiversity and deliver fresh water and sustainable goals and other things. Uh, that cheap stuff gets eaten up pretty fast. And so as you start ramping up the cost curve, we don't quite know what that looks like yet. I personally want to see more and more of that. And many companies are not only working on that themselves, but corporates and strategics are looking at actively investing in reforestation and soil carbon restoration and all these things. What is also, I think, an issue in that, though, is we just don't know for real how much of that we can do and how much of that we can do quickly. And it's still the case that we're chopping down forests, even though we know that's a bad thing to do. So I see the biological pathways as essential, as valuable, as actionable today, but also they're plagued by their own set of problems. I just consider that another component of the work to be done. Thank you for your time today. My pleasure. I'm delighted to be here.
Before we go, we're going to play a little excerpt from one of the uh, artistic performances we had on stage this week at Verge 18. This is from opera artist Amanda Gregory and digital artist John Bukaberger. I think I mispronounced that. I'm sorry, John. They presented something called Voice on Display. It's a live performance with augmented reality that represents the personalized relationship between nature, technology, and humans. You can actually see this on the live stream that we will that we have been running and we will uh, have on demand starting uh, probably next week, uh, very soon in any case. Just a tremendous performance. We love, like to mix those into the, uh, the panels and other speakers just to give a little bit of a break and a little bit of perspective. So here's some of Amanda and John. And that's our 350 podcast for this week from Verge 18. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350-350, and you'll find more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, look for a link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can hit us up by email, 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. Heather and I will be back next week from our usual perches on Franco Gawa Plaza in Oakland and in uh, New Jersey from Heather's point of view for another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group and at Verge 18, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>